A very warm welcome to the latest edition of the Generation Podcast. It's great to have you with us. Um, wonderful to have your company, wherever you are. You're walking, you're in the car, you're in the house, just listening to a conversation between me and one of my friends. And today, our guest is David Ellis. David has just written um, what I can only describe as a phenomenal book. It's called Through All the Changing, or Through uh, All the Changing Scenes, and the subtitle is A Lifelong Experience of God's Unfailing Grace. So it's kind of semi-autobiographical, touching on so many issues. Some of them we will talk about uh, this morning. David was for many years a missionary in Indonesia, and he was a director of OMF International UK. He served in St. George's Prawn as, in Glasgow as an associate minister, and he is now happily retired in the fair city of Dundee. And so, David, a very warm welcome to your podcast. Thank you. Can you tell us a little bit about the book? I mean, what makes you or made you write that book through all the changing scenes? Well, it has a history. Um, at the time uh, when I first started to write some of the stories that come up in this book, I was actually in hospital. I had been preaching in the old London City Presbyterian Church in London and uh, driving home from there uh, developed uh, a serious pain in my uh, gut, which landed me in hospital. And I was in hospital when the events of 9-11 took place. And I was interested that subsequent to those terrible things that we witnessed and I witnessed there on the ward in the hospital, there was such a reaction against uh, uh, people from the Islamic faith And I thought to myself, I understand something of their mindset, not completely. I'm not an expert in in their theology or their their ways, but having worked amongst uh, Muslim people and understanding some of their political inclinations, I could understand something of their animosity towards uh, our Western colonial mindset. And while one could never condone the, the extent to which they indulged in uh, jihad, uh, I could have some understanding for their feelings and their reactions towards Western colonialism. And that, perhaps, was the impetus that made me think about Psalm 2, which is one of the core ways in which I look at the world through that book, Uh, and also to think about um, how people perceive their uh, Islamic way of looking at us and that stimulated me to write a book through all the, um, sorry, not through all the changing scenes. That wasn't the book at the time. It was a book called From Fear to Faith. So that book was sold and sold out. And eventually, uh, various people put pressure on me to write again. And I thought, well, perhaps with some of the subsequent experiences of another 20 years, there were some things that I could add to that book and rework some of the examples within the book and integrate it more into perhaps uh, more autobiographical detail. And so that's what was uh, somewhat of the history of the development of this through all the changing scenes. But of course, as you read the book, you'll realise it's not a sort of blow-by-blow account of missionary life, and rather it is trying to get hold of and enlarge upon 
the truth that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Uh, and I love to communicate that thought that in all the changing scenes of life, God is sovereign, uh, trying to help people to see the difference between religion and uh, their faith and a living relationship with Christ, and to understand that in all the events that take place in, in life, our Lord is able to turn those to the good of making us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So those are some of the factors in the background that, that stimulated me to, to write the book. I shall probably think of other things, David, as answers to your question, but at my stage in life, I tend to forget what comes next. The grey matter doesn't work quite as quickly as it used to. No problem at all. Now, living outside of the UK for a significant period of your life and living in another culture where the majority of religion, majority of faith is different, um, to what extent has that changed your life and given you an insight into Scotland and the wider UK? Well, that's an interesting question. I suppose generally uh, exposure to other countries, to other faiths, uh, to other situations, to other uh, life issues inevitably broadens our mind and our understanding. And for those of us who are trusting in the Lord, it drives us closer to him and to seek to understand his ways. So um, to answer specifically to that, I'm not quite sure how I would answer it rather than to say my confident trust and faith in the Lord has grown through the years because of my experience of the fact that he has been utterly faithful in every situation that I've had to face. I think it's also given me a greater spirit of being able to listen and try and accept the point of view of other people, realising that there are so often more than just one way of looking at issues. Mm. Whether that's an answer or not, I'm not No, sure. that's a great answer, David. I, growing up, were you growing up in a context which was international in perspective? From what I mean by that, um, you were raised, what, in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. Um, to what extent was your life influenced by international events? Well, I think... Uh, my father was a, a major in the Royal Engineers and he'd been in the First World War and he was in the Second World War and he'd spent quite a bit of his uh, military service in Egypt and in India. So um, he would often talk about those experiences and therefore from a very early age, I would think, uh, my mind wasn't just solely confined to life in the United Kingdom. Uh, he was a godly man. Uh, our family were believers. Uh, I was brought up in the uh, open brethren assemblies and uh, constantly uh, confronted, if that's the word, <laughs> with the challenge of the mission field. Uh, very often there were missionaries who came to speak in our home assembly and uh, frequently they would be brought back to our house for a meal so I would listen to their stories with fascination. Uh, I also had a, an adopted uncle who was a missionary in Algeria, and I think he also had quite an influence on my life. So these kind of influences were there in the early days, and a, a godly culprator once gave me a copy of the life of Hudson Taylor, and uh, reading that through was another factor that broadened my understanding of, of the mission, uh, world mission and missions generally. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about your 
call, was it a call specifically to Indonesia or was it a general sense of overseas mission? Well, I suppose it's tied in basically to my own uh, progress, or if that's the word for it, my life as a believer. Uh, I, I would have described myself when I went in to do engineering at Ford Motor Company on a scholarship scheme as an apprentice. I was definitely very far from following the Lord. Um, but it was during that time that I made a commitment to Christ and that changed my whole perspective on what I was doing. And um, at that time, I began to uh, get more and more involved in open-air preaching work uh, in my hometown of Southend-on-Sea, down in Essex. Um, and there was a tremendous desire in my heart to, to get to know uh, the Scriptures in a more deep way. I was offered an opportunity by Ford to uh, take a scholarship to do a, a degree in engineering electronics at uh, Durham University. And at the same time, I was offered, uh, I had to front up for the possibility of doing national armed service, having been deferred. Um, at that time, I was turned down for my medical uh, by the military. Uh, so I had the option of either accepting Ford's offer for study in electronics or my desire to go to Bible college. And it was that desire to deepen my knowledge of God's word that I put first and uh, came into contact with the Bible Training Institute in Glasgow in Scotland and applied there and was accepted. And during my time at Bible college, um, <clears throat> And under the various uh, ministries that uh, I was happy to uh, follow there, I, there grew a growing, growing conviction uh, that I might think about the mission field. I had joined the China Inland Mission Prayer Group and uh, used to go there every week, uh, run by Os Guinness's uh, parents, Mary and Henry Guinness. And it was during those meetings that I became more and more, uh, shall I say, interested in the work of God in Southeast Asia. And also there became a, a slow but uh, increasing conviction that maybe I should be the one who should step up in the line with the prayers that I was offering for the work there in Southeast Asia. On one occasion I was at a... <clears throat> Uh, I know him, excuse me, <coughs> conference in Alloa. I think uh, Eric Alexander at the time was the was the, doing the Bible studies, and uh, I, as I was having my quiet time, I was just tremendously uh, convicted that maybe God was calling me to go to the mission field, and so I sat down, knelt down at the side of my bed, and got out a piece of paper and I wrote down all the reasons why I didn't want to leave engineering because that was my heart. Um, and then I put down all the reasons why I felt that God was possibly calling me to the mission field. And when I looked at that list, down the one side I could have write, written, I wrote the word self, that's what I wanted to do. And down the other side, I wrote the word that God was calling me to do that. I knew that was clear. And I knew then at that point, David, that if I didn't offer uh, to respond to that call, I would be in disobedience. And that's what uh, 
took me out to the mission field originally. It wasn't specifically a call to Indonesia as such, but it was a call to get involved in mission and with a view to mission in Asia and with the China Inland Mission in those days. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> now, going back uh, just a few steps, we cannot you know, talk about you and your call to mission without talking about Adele, who uh, was your wife. And I understand that that romance began uh, in BTI, in Bothell Street, I suppose it would have been then, in, in, in Glasgow. Can you tell us a little bit about that, how you met, and did she share this calling to cross-cultural mission? Well, uh, <clears throat> if you really want to know how, how we met, you need to read the book, of course. But, of course, uh, well, I know. I'm just, uh, <laughs> uh, it was a great story. Tell, tell yeah. our, give our readers some tantalising hints. Well, Adele herself was the daughter of the principal of the BTI, Andrew Macbeth, and she wasn't a student, so I didn't meet her in the course of uh, sitting down at lessons with her. I did meet her one evening uh, early on, uh, when she was down in the kitchen with her mother collecting milk to take to the flat upstairs where they used to live within the Bible Training Institute. And that on that occasion, I think our eyes met and uh, just something in the back of my mind clicked. It just so happened that um, several months later, uh, I was one of the presidents for the students and one of my responsibilities every uh, week was to go along to the uh, studio, the, the the study of the principal Andrew Macbeth to report on uh, on the situation on the in the BTI with the students because we all lived in the Bible College in those days, and in those days you weren't allowed particularly to um, <clears throat> go out with uh, one of the girls unless you had permission from the principal. It was quite a different uh, day and age. Well, it just so happened that uh, some of the students, whenever they wanted to track down Mr. Macbeth to ask him a question, would wait until his mealtime, because at mealtimes, he would always be in his flat upstairs and you knew where to find him. The, the Bible Training Institute was a labyrinth of passages and it was always hard to track people down. But when it was mealtime, you knew where Mr. Macbeth was. And Mr. Macbeth was the kind of person with his passion and concern for the students that no matter whenever a student came to the door, he immediately gave his full attention to them. But this for the family itself became a bit of a problem because he, he would interrupt his meals and leave their meals. So Adele was asked by her brother and mother to contact the student president and ask that the president tell the students that they were not allowed to interfere with Mr. Macbeth during mealtimes. And of course, that meant that Adele and I had to meet up. And as we met up, and I recognised that she was the last that I had uh, had that encounter with at the milk churn. <clears throat> um, we got to know one another and there developed within us a very strong sense of companionability, which I see as the fundamental ingredient of any happy relationship and marriage. She was at the time studying uh, for a doctorate. Um, she had graduated with a double first degree in Italian and French, uh, honours degrees in both. She's a bright young lady. Uh, and she was linking up with uh, a couple who worked with the uh, Italian 
Christian Union movement, which was uh, under IFES, because she too had a burden for outreach. She was sort of born, as it were, in the in, in a missionary family, born in the Congo, uh, lived in South Africa, had lived in Canada. Her father was a man with a, a mission heart, uh, a burden for missions, and all that was imparted to the children. So whenever we met together, we talked about the fact that she was involved in student work and that uh, she had that kind of involvement as she pursued her doctoral studies over in Rome University in Italy. So her background was one uh, of burden for missions. And when uh, I (coughs) plucked up enough courage to take her out one day and uh, revealed to her the fact that I had applied to go to CIM, uh, 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 or, or to offer to CIM for missionary service, I had the temerity of, that's the word for it, uh, rather embarrassed and shy, but to ask her whether or not she might be interested in joining me. And uh, what was clear was she did have that same burden for, for mission, for outreach, for evangelism. I don't know whether that answers your question, David. Yeah, no, I've... I've a bit I've, of a rambling answer. <laughs> no, that, that's a super answer. Um, now, you went out to Indonesia, and interesting, I think you went out in 1964. Now, pretty early on, Adele got sick, and you had to come home. What interests me, and I think may interest other people, is that was that was a setback very early on, we live in a Christian culture where there are no setbacks. You know, it's everything's triumphal, everything's amazing, everything's, you know, great answers to prayer, and there's a kind of inherent, you know, sense of over-realized victory amongst folk. Can you talk about how you coped with setbacks, especially that setback in uh, 1964? Well, in actual fact, we... we I went out in 1962, and we were eventually married in 1964. And within about um, five or six months of uh, getting married, Adele developed pulmonary tuberculosis uh, and had a collapsed lung. And at that particular time in Indonesia, uh, the the country was uh, heading up towards a communist coup and... uh, the economy was was absolutely uh, wrecked, and people in the area were were starving. Food was difficult. Uh, she had to go into hospital, and in hospital, uh, the supply of medicines was was very difficult. Uh, she lost weight seriously, and uh, it became evident evident to the leaders in our mission organisation that uh, we needed to get out of the country and to get back home. Uh, so eventually. There were various complications, but slowly, and we we did manage to get back home. And this was a massive setback because you know when you've when you've felt that you've responded in obedience to the call of Christ, uh, and things don't exactly turn out the way you might have predicted, it is uh, a, quite a, a challenge to your faith. That's why I love the story of the of the disciples. Uh, crossing uh, Galilee when the storm broke and Jesus seemed to be asleep. Well, he was asleep. And the fact that that they probably couldn't understand how on earth he had let them get into that sort of situation. Don't you care, he says, that we're perishing? Don't you care? Well, of course, he did care. 
And the fact of the matter was that they had followed Christ's uh, word. It, they were in that boat and they were in that situation and God did not spare them from that situation. In fact, they were in that very situation of the storm in their experience because they had obeyed the call of Christ uh, to go across the lake. Um, and you know the outcome of that story when he stills the waters and stills the storm and they come up with these words, who then is this? And I think that that kind of lesson came to me through that particular setback, that even though I couldn't understand why he had allowed it, even why it seemed to be tortuous uh, and, and difficult, nevertheless, ultimately, the one who controlled the waves was still controlling the world and he was controlling our lives too. And that whatever the outcome would finally be, he had it in hand. So I think at that level, it was a new realization of who Jesus is that came through it all. And that to me gave me strength. And indeed going through life, I think that's the one thing that gives me strength all along, getting to know the Lord in a deeper way. Yes, yeah, through all the ups and downs of life, if I were to ask you, David, have you ever had the thought that Christianity is a myth or that God doesn't exist? I think the words, to whom shall we go, you have the words of life comes back to me. Anytime any doubt might creep into my mind, I think, what is the alternative? The answer is Christ. And I come back to that. And without him, I would be lost. Mm -hmm. So whether or not that's an academic answer or not, I don't know, David, but it's, a, it's a, an existential answer as far as I'm concerned. That link with him to me is all important. And that growing knowledge of him uh, as life goes on becomes more and more precious. And I wouldn't be without that for any cost. Mm -hmm. No, I think that's important. So, you know, as you suggest, doubts come. Yes. They are dispelled by looking to Jesus. Yeah. Yes, if you look at, if you look at all the, the, everything in life, you, you cannot sort it all out. There's no way we can sort it all out. It's beyond us. But if you focus on him, that's the key. And it's in that that you find joy and peace and strength. And your faith grows. Yeah. <clears throat> Moving again, we'll sort of bounce between sort of technical questions and more personal questions. I'm interested in, in mission. I mean, Adele was a linguist, um, clearly at the very top of her game. You were an engineer, so she was a woman of words and language. You were a man of technology. How important is it for cross-cultural missionaries to learn the language of the host nation? And uh, presumably Adele found that easier than you found it. I think on the other hand, it, it probably worked around the other way by a strange uh, mm -hmm. thing, David, because uh, I, I had gone to the, um, the Wycliffe language course that they used to hold down in Chigwell in Essex, before I went out to the mission field. And I think one of the things that uh, uh, they taught us there was that you, you can learn by listening uh, and by imitating. Uh, under the uh, uh, training from Ford Motor Company, I'd spent two years in, in Paris, uh, sorry, two months in Paris, 
And I had a smattering of schoolboy French when I went to uh, work in that factory. But I found that uh, talking to people on the factory floor, I probably picked up all the wrong kind of French, but <laughs> I became more fluent in French as a result of that. And I realized that probably my ability was not that of, of book learning, but it was rather just uh, of listening and uh, conversing with people. So when I got to Singapore and had to do language study, uh, I was quite fearful initially thinking to myself, uh, you know, I'm not a linguist, I, I'm a practical man. But I discovered there that uh, by living with a Malay family uh, who didn't use any English, if I was going to eat and if I was going to be able to relate socially, I was going to have to learn just like any child learned. And I think that's probably the way in which I learned my Indonesian um, the Mission Society used to have all kinds of academic books that you were supposed to follow. And I'm afraid I was a little bit of a rebel because I didn't follow the, the organized language course. Um, but I used to, uh, my home when I got to Java, I opened up to six students who came and lived with me, Indonesian students, who didn't speak a word of English. And that's the way in which I learned Indonesian. And uh, so I picked it up, whether it's by osmosis or whatever you call it, it, it was just, and if people say to me, uh, you, you speak uh, well in Indonesian, I would just say, yeah, well, I'm, a parrot is able to imitate and that's me. <laughs> so I, I learned that way. Whereas Adele uh, had the ability uh, linguistically and academically. Uh, and I think that probably... Uh, that worked out in, in our respective ministries because my ministry in, in Indonesia was, was mostly preaching and teaching, whereas her ministry was mostly working with the translation of, of literature from English into Indonesian. So the two skills and the two ways of using language, I think, in God's purposes were complementary. And although we were totally different in terms of uh, background, I mean, uh, Adele was, uh, was well, she was practical, yes, of course, but uh, she was more academic than I was, or than I am. Um, but I think that the, the two different kind of giftings worked together to make a reasonable compromise. <laughs> so we got it together. <coughs> yeah, well, you had four boys. I think all of them were born in Java. Yeah. Um, Folk very often talk about marriage as an adventure. I think we can safely say that your marriage to Adele was an adventure. Do you see in these terms and how did the adventurous elements manifest themselves? Well, it certainly was an adventure. <laughs> I, I think, uh, I don't know how, how you would want me to answer that one so much, but uh, we, we had many adventures of life within Indonesia itself, not alone uh, the incident, obviously, where she, she got so sick that we had to come back home. That was one of the adventures. Each child being born was another adventure because the facilities medically in Indonesia in those days were not up to the kind of facilities that we have over here. It was also an adventure because um, <clears throat> the, the, the country was politically in turmoil. I think, in a sense, we went through two very difficult political times when one when the Communist Party staged a coup which failed in the aftermath of the uh, fighting almost civil war that took place after that and then subsequently uh, a revival in um, the politics of a particular party that I will not name which created another kind of revolution in the 70s and uh, the early 80s. So we had plenty of adventure along those lines 
um, then sending the children had to be sent away to a school in Malaysia, Chifu School, which meant that they had to fly from Indonesia and be away from us for many months. If you call that an adventure, that's another adventure, and it was an adventure for the children themselves to experience life in a boarding school away from their parents, uh, all of which was uh, perhaps one of the hardest sides that we had to deal with in life. I think uh, compared with um, missionary life, having to handle the possibility of separation for your children is one of the most difficult things of all. As somebody said, all the rest of uh, your work as missionaries is cream cakes compared with that. And uh, and yet the children, by the grace of God, came through um, and uh, following the Lord, which is a wonderful encouragement to us. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, if you stayed at Ford, I guess you could have been, you know, uh, an executive uh, in the automobile industry. Adele could have been in academia, you know, teaching in a university. Um, Do you regret anything? Je ne regrette rien. There's no regret, no regret at all. I mean, my goodness gracious me. When I first uh, broke the news to my father that I was going to, um, I was going to go to Bible college and to the mission field, my father was a godly man, as I mentioned, but he was an engineer and he was an army major. And he immediately raised the issue of how are you going to support yourself? Mm-hmm. Uh, where's the money going to come from? And um, I said, well, I quite believe that if the principle that if I seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, all these things will be added and that the money won't be a problem. Um, but my mother was a very practical woman and she said to dad, you know, God will not be worse than any human employer. He couldn't possibly be, so he won't. He'll be all right. And of course, looking back through life, that's been absolutely true. The Lord has supplied everything that we have needed in every situation. Not that there haven't been times when we've been penniless and uh, at our wits' end over things, but He's always been there for us, and we've known that. So, no regrets. No regrets. Yeah. Only thankfulness. <clears throat> precious memories. The book's entitled Through All the Changing Scenes. Adele sadly passed away about four years ago. She had um, been suffering from Alzheimer's for a few years before that. Looking from the outside, I mean, I didn't know you in in that scenario, didn't engage with you in that scenario, but folk in similar situations, it seems to me as being one of the toughest issues that anyone can deal with. Uh, Would you say that through your adventures lives that that um, struggle with Alzheimer's was the number one issue and how did you cope with it? Yes, that's not an easy, I mean, it's not an easy subject, David. It touches uh, very deeply. I think that um, Adele's mother had had Alzheimer's and it was one of those things that she feared. And when um, she began to be aware that she wasn't uh, as sharp mentally as she had been. I think the fear of the Alzheimer's became more and more intense for her, and I began to realise that things weren't quite right. Um, Eventually, she managed to summon up enough strength and courage to uh, 
check up with uh, the medics as to whether or not she was suffering from Alzheimer's. And the the interesting thing is, David, that when, when it was confirmed to her, the diagnosis that she had possibly had Alzheimer's, the Lord gave her an incredible uh, acceptance and sense of peace about that. And for that, both of us were, were deeply grateful. But coming back to perhaps my side of it, um, I, I can't imagine any, anything more agonizing um, than that uh, experience of someone who has been so much yourself and so much a part of your life uh, when slowly and eventually there comes that time when she doesn't recognize you anymore and uh, can't understand where home is and can't understand who you are and can't understand what's happening. Um, it's the tearing apart of the one flesh, uh, and that's something which it's it's almost impossible to verbalize. I think I have tried to do that in the book without being going into too much detail, partly because it's too painful to write about. And there are various stages in, in trying to cope with uh, handling the Alzheimer's in a marriage relationship, which become increasingly complex. Adele would uh, confuse me with other people, not even know who I was, um, not understand um, what she was being asked to do. In public, she might appear uh, in, a, in a in a social context. Initially, when people spoke to her, she might appear to be quite normal because she had a certain amount of, um, uh, you might say, a certain number of phrases and words that she could express and, and respond to questions. But when you're standing by knowing the truth of uh, what she's being asked and how she's answering, you realise that she's, uh, I think the med medical term is confabulating. She's putting together ideas in order to give an answer which may or may not be truth uh, or may not, may not be real. And having to learn to live with her sense of reality and to... Uh, to avoid hurting her in any way or increasing her pain, that becomes difficult. I think in that context, if you're asking me, how do you deal with that? Um, yeah, uh, I think the friendship of people who understand, uh, members in the family who understand and stand by you, that is incredibly important. Um, loving that person, even when... Um, they can't respond to you is incredibly important and realizing that um, you you have to live to serve them. I often uh, used to think, well, all the years where she has loved us as a family and cared for the children and given herself up uh, for the benefit of the family, uh, if I get the opportunity now to have to do that for her, then that's a privilege and it's a joy because I love her and... Um, but how to cope with it, David, every situation I'm sure is different. I was chatting to somebody the other day who uh, has Alzheimer's in the family and uh, they were mentioning the situation where the, the person concerned with the Alzheimer's had become very aggressive and had a dramatic personality change and they were asking me, did I have to cope with that? Well, I would have to say that uh, the Lord was gracious to us in that respect. Adele was always a, a very... A gentle uh, soul, and despite her great learning, a very humble soul. Uh, she was never 
proud or difficult and by the grace of God, even through the, the pain of the Alzheimer's, she still uh, maintained that, that gentle spirit. She she loved the Lord. And it's interesting, David, if I could just say, she, she loved the Lord. And fundamentally, she was so thorough to the Word of God that that particular aspect of her personality right, lasted right through to those final stages when she was no longer compass mentis at all. It's amazing. Mm. The other day I saw a, a video of a lady who had been a ballet dancer and had extreme uh, Alzheimer's. And when the music was played, she instinctively went through all the motions of Swan Lake. That was so deeply in her, in her brain that that survived. And in Adele's case, she was a, a lady who read the Word of God every day faithfully without, without fail. And she did that right through to the end of her days, even when she was in the care home. She still had the ability to read the scriptures. She would sit next to a staff member and read the Bible to her. And one day I asked the lady, the manager of the care home, uh, how did she get on when Adele sat by the side of her computer reading the scriptures to her? And her response was, it's strangely calming. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> right to the end of her life, Adele had that particular witness. Um, but how to advise other people? Talk to people who know. Join the Alzheimer's Society, which which uh, are some excellent people there who understand what you're having to face, and and talk with people. When when the pressures get more than you can cope with, seek counsel from these people who are qualified in that area to give you leading and help and counsel. Well, I think many. Hello. Hello, I'm still there. I lost you for a second. Many people who will be listening to this, and, you know, there are hundreds of people listening to Generation Podcast, will be going through, you know, what you and Adele went through. So what you've said has been immensely um, helpful to them. So thank you for that. Uh Um, Let's just move on. I mean, our our time is going. I'm moving a little bit selfish here. I was discussing this question with a friend yesterday, um, I was a student at Glasgow. I was in Strathclyde uh, at the end of the 70s and early 80s when yourself and Eric Alexander were in the Tron. And I was saying to my friend that I used to listen to preaching in those days and it really was wonderful. You know, Sunday nights there, sometimes in the Tron, there was just a, a taste of, of heaven. Now, I don't know. I, I just don't. I'm not saying I don't enjoy preaching. I do. I love preaching. But nothing compares to my memory of those times in the 70s and 80s. And I wonder, is is my memory playing tricks with me? Or was there a particular unction on Eric's ministry and on your own ministry in in the Tron in in those days? Can you just describe what what it was like uh, working alongside Eric and these days with the students in, in, in the Tron? Well, I'm sure all our memories play tricks on us and some things, uh, uh, looking back, uh, were golden when perhaps the, the time they weren't quite so golden. <laughs> but if you're coming to the issue of working with Eric Alexander at the Tron, that to me was, was a wonderful privilege. Um, I never dreamt it would be possible to do that um, I think I, I do say something about that in the book that I'd come back from uh, 
um, working in Singapore uh, in a somewhat worn down situation uh, mentally and um, having burned out and Eric very kindly invited me to join him in his pulpit. I must say that it, it was a joy to work with Eric and an incredible privilege and I was always thrilled whenever I sat under his ministry um, and I'm not surprised uh, David that you would have that testimony of his preaching there at the Tron. Uh, he was somebody who, who had that special anointing in his preaching, and uh, it was a blessing. So, I, uh, yes, I think he did have that anointing, and of course it's that anointing that, that needs to be on all our preaching, does it not? Otherwise, uh, it, it becomes dead and, and lifeless. I, I, I think sometimes um, I yearn to hear that same kind of preaching. Um, and of course, one does hear it from time to time, but not everybody has the particular gift and skills that someone like uh, Sinclair has. Uh, sorry, I was going to say Eric, but that's also true of Sinclair Ferguson, of course. Yes, yes. <laughs> so the Lord has his special gifted servants, doesn't he? And I think we have to acknowledge and, uh, and give, give gratitude to the Lord for that uh, blessing that these people are to us and to all of us. We're not all cut out to be uh, great uh, preachers, but when, when somebody has the gift, uh, if I put, put it this way, has got a gift of oratory along with a heart for God uh, and, and, and a, a love for the souls of men and women, well, then you've got a wonderful uh, channel of blessing to his people, and these people are particularly chosen vessels. I could think of, think of several others of that era that you and I would, 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 would remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay, we're coming to the end now, but just to, to conclude, you're now retired, can, and it seems to be happily retired, and you are an encourager of young men. Can you just, in conclusion, give us one or two tips for a happy and fulfilled retirement? <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. <laughs> I think that's an unfair question, David. <laughs> I'm not sure I can immediately spring them to mind, but I think contentment with godliness is great gain, I think the scripture says, and hopefully that that's possibly the, the answer to your question. Yeah. Uh, yeah. At one level, uh, I have so much to be grateful to the Lord for, and uh, like anybody else at the moment in lockdown, there are aspects of that which I, I don't welcome. Um, I think in coping with grief and bereavement, uh, that has been something that uh, I've not found that easy. I've had to come to the realisation that uh, grief is not something you get over, but it's something that you have to learn to live with. And uh, I still live with that sense of loneliness. But I want would say, this is very personal, I suppose, that um, I could never say that Adele was uh, between me and the Lord, but I think there are times perhaps in the past when I would have turned to her for spiritual wisdom, and now that she's not there, um, I'm it is forced in a new sense to make sure that I'm turning to the Lord. Uh, that he is there for me. And I think the sense of his being with me and the sense of his companionship, uh, the sense that he is a friend to whom I can go, someone who will never turn me away no matter how bad I've been and how awful I am, someone 
and who understands and whose love is even drawn out to me in my failings so that I can always go back to him when I, when I, when I stumble, as I still do. Um, I think it's those sort of lessons that I'm learning in my own retirement and in this, uh, this sort of aftermath of being left alone for so many years. So I don't know that I've got tips for young men except to walk closely, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your Lord, um, to seek to study his word, to seek the company of his people uh, and to put his kingdom and his concerns as first in your life. These are maybe the things that I would uh, want to urge on people. David, again, thank you so much for being generous with your time. And through this podcast, you still minister. It's been a very helpful conversation. Thank you for being so candid. If I can just recommend the book again, it is called Through All the Changing Scenes, David W. Ellis, and it's published by Christian Focus Publications. Please, if you get it, you can. I would really recommend a Christian book outlet if you can. So there's books.freechurch.org. Uh, Free Church Books can get you that. The Mound Bookshop here in Edinburgh, 10 of those. I guess you could get it on Amazon, very simply. But we would really love if you could support Christian book retailers at this difficult time. David, thank you so much for being generous with us today. And God bless. Thank you.